Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today is a, a special episode, at least for me. Um, I've been we've been doing a lot of uh, interviews, primarily with you know uh, board certified behavior analysts or folks that are kind of working towards certification. Mostly folks that kind of work in the in kind of that ABA sort of field and. And it's been great. We've had some really great conversations. One topic that's been coming up a lot, both in the interviews and kind of in a lot of the social media discussions that I've been involved in of late, uh, is things kind of around ABA reform, taking another, another look at kind of how we, you know, uh, you know, treat the folks that we spend most of our, our time working. Most of the folks, most, most of the BCBAs in our field tend to work with folks on the autism spectrum, folks who are autistic. And, um, and so there's been a lot of conversation lately about kind of how, how can we do better in terms of uh, both, uh, you know, including autistic voices in, in our research and, 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 and kind of how we, how we treat autistic folks, kind of try to minimize or remove ableism and other sorts of things that, you know, we may not realize are happening, but are happening. And, uh, and in my kind of research, kind of looking for more information upon that, I, I came upon uh, today's guest, uh, Dr. Uh, Ariel Cassio. Uh, Dr. Cassio is uh, a professor at uh, Central Michigan University. And what they do is they, they, they teach ethics and research methods and social science and conduct research about sort of uh, a lot of different areas of kind of autism and, and, and neurodiversity. Um, but what they do specifically that I really like, because um, uh, I didn't sort of get into all of their research, is they, they've been doing a lot of research lately on on the uh, sort of ethical autism research and kind of how 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 we recruit folks and 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 how we treat folks through through the through the entire process. And it's it's a really fascinating um, uh, sort of research that I think more BCBAs would really find valuable. And so I thought this, uh, they would be a great guest to kind of have on and, and, and kind of, and kind of sh- share their story. So welcome to the podcast, Ariel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and, and give me the opportunity to talk about my research today. Um, I am going to talk a, a lot about this research on autism research ethics that I conducted when I was a postdoc at the Institut de Recherche Clinique de Montréal. Um, and I've also done research before and after with autistic folks um, in a variety of contexts in a variety of countries, particularly in Canada, the United States, and Italy. Uh, so should have uh, a lot of things to talk about. And I'm just really happy to be here and to get to communicate with your audience really cool and and, then and i forgot that was another piece was sort of was certainly uh hitting close to home uh dr cassio has been um uh, doing a lot of work with um uh dr jonathan weiss who a lot of i think a lot of our listeners will especially our canadian listeners will be familiar with him and his work and certainly Mm -hmm. in in bc i think he was a uh, I think we've had him out as a speaker a couple of times on some on some in some areas, and so yeah, I think I think that'll resonate well um, uh, w- with folks as well. Before we kind of get into your research, um, um, I'd love to kind of know. Uh, always kind of start with a bit of an origin story, and usually the origin stories are quite similar because they're mostly behavior analysts, and they all kind of have a similar kind of way of getting into the field. So I think it'd be kind of really cool to kind of hear you know, your story about kind of how you got into your field and, and, and sort of what led you to kind of start conducting this kind of research. 
I might have a bit of a different origin story. Um, you know, it's hard to think about an origin story. Sometimes I, I might tell it a couple of different ways. Um, but, but one origin story that has really resonated with me for a while since I started doing this uh, research. I started doing research involving um, folks on the autism spectrum in about 2008. And at the time, I was an undergraduate student. I was studying anthropology, cultural anthropology. I'd studied a little bit of, um, you know, related fields. Um, and I, I didn't have an incredibly personal connection to the topic of autism or the concept of autism. I, I don't identify as autistic myself. I don't have a diagnosis. Um, I don't you know, particularly have a child with a, with a diagnosis or a sibling. Um, I did know folks uh, with autism or Asperger's syndrome at the time. So I, I did have some familiarity. But what really started to interest me in autism research was an article that I stumbled across kind of by mistake when I was doing something else and just getting easily distracted. And, and it was, it was in a, uh, a popular magazine of some sort, um, but it was published in about 2005, right when folks started talking about autism as an epidemic. Mm. Um, and I, you know, again, I had some some vague familiarity. Um, I had folks tell me, you know, I have a diagnosis of Asperger's. This is what it means to me. This is what autism means to me. Um, and, uh, you know, just a, just a little bit. But this was the first time I'd really seen a lot of popular coverage. Um, and even though it was a little bit of an older article, I, I sat down, I read the whole thing, and I was really struck by the language that this article used um, to talk about the autism epidemic. And, the tone of the article, you know, to me as a, as a naive reader, it really came across as, you know, isn't it terrible? Mm. There are these children, they would rather play by themselves than play with other children. Mm. Isn't it terrible? There are these adults and they're really interested in this one specific topic and they keep talking about that topic even if the other person's not interested and they don't pick up on the cues that the other people aren't interested. Mm. And when I read this this article, the things that the authors were describing as terrible didn't sound very terrible to me. Um, hmm. I I recognized these things in myself, hmm. in my loved ones. Um, the the particular things this article was focus were focusing on, um, such as you know preference for solitude or uh, strong interests, which not not all autistic folks share, hmm. um, but that was that was what the message was at the time. And as I mentioned, I was I was already studying anthropology. And so mm. from that perspective, I was really interested in this idea of like the cultural idea of what is normal and what is not normal mm. and what that not normal means. If it mm. if it means genius, if it means geekiness, eccentricity, social awkwardness, a diagnosis. Which mm. diagnosis mm. is autism a medical diagnosis? Is it a psychiatric diagnosis? Are those two things? Are they the same thing? What does it mean for something to be in the DSM? These are all the things that I got really interested in. And since then, I learned a lot more about the many different things that autism means to different people and the many different ways that people um, you know, experience their lives, things that people really are concerned about, like self-injurious behavior mm. um, or, or harming others. Um, it's not all about the things that this article put forth as terrible that I didn't think were terrible. Mm. Um, but I still was was really compelled by 
this framing of, of certain things mm-hmm. that didn't seem harmful um, as an epidemic and as something terrible and as something to combat. And that's, that's really how I got started with this research. That's really cool. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, this is, we're talking, you know, at least 15 years ago that you kind of read that article and we're, you know, kind of having these perceptions. And this is the exact kind of language that we're hearing right now, uh, particularly, I think, on in sort of these social media kind of circles where I think a lot of autistic folks, um, uh, you know, uh, tend to flock to kind of get their message out. And, um, and, and the talk has been just that about sort of, you know, and I think part of this tends is is is, is I think feeds into the, the the ableist argument where upon diagnosis, it, it it's 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 the, the diagnosis is delivered to parents more often than not as bad news, and and so right at the very beginning, the the very first moment you learn about that about about the diagnosis of uh, sometimes your two three year old child. It's a bad thing. Bad things are going to happen. You're going to need help. You're going to be stressed. You're going to be depressed. Um, you're going to have all these problems. Um, and, and, and sort of that, that, that pathway is set by the diagnostician and, and, and is continued, you know, uh, you know, in, 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 in a lot of the services that they get. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's just interesting that 15 years ago you read that and yet today folks are, you know, still pointing that out like it's a new thing. Yeah. So from there, uh, a lot of this, uh, it seems like a lot of this, this, uh, the work that we're going to kind of talk, talk about today is coming out of, um, uh, actually, I think all the work we're talking about today is coming out of uh, the work you've done with, with this team in Canada. So can you uh-huh. tell us a little bit about kind of how that, how that team formed and, you know, like, and who it's made up of and, and sort of all, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so I got involved with this team in Canada in um, 2016. So I've been doing autism research for a while at that point as uh, an anthropologist who studies the social world of autism, social and ethical um, issues related to autism. I finished my undergraduate degree and I went on to get a PhD in anthropology. I did some dissertation research with adolescents and young adults on the spectrum in Italy who are accessing Uh, autism-focused services, things that were really uh, targeting folks with autism specifically. And um, then I saw the opportunity to join this team in Canada as a postdoctoral researcher. Um, And the project that Jonathan Weiss and Eric Grissen, who's the uh, director of the Pragmatic Health Research Ethics Unit, Pragmatic Health Ethics Research Unit, I apologize, Hmm. uh, at the Institut de Recherche Clinique de Montréal, they were looking um, to do some participatory research with autistic folks and other stakeholders, other people who are interested in this topic of autism research ethics um, around proposing best practices that researchers could use when thinking about when doing or planning a study that would involve participants uh, on the autism spectrum. And so I was really interested in this project because it really combined um, the work that I had been doing with autistic folk and some participatory research that I had been doing in another field, um, you know, making this more participatory autism research. Um, because I, I just thought that was something that I could use more of. Uh, in my own research, I'm still developing, still think I can use more participatory approaches in my own research. Uh, so I really jumped at the opportunity to join that team. And 
where uh, Dr. Weiss and Dr. Rasen were coming from with uh, this study is that uh, they had long been uh, involved with a network of researchers that I became involved with as well, uh, the Kids Brain Health Network, uh, which focuses research on uh, neurodevelopmental conditions, uh, one of which was autism spectrum condition. And uh, a number of researchers were talking about, you know, wanting more guidance in terms of how to do ethical research involving autistic folk. Um, and this is something that I, I also saw a need for. There had been a few more things published, um, you know, in the, in the 20-teens, um, but when I was really planning my dissertation research, um, 20, 2010, 2011 or so, there really wasn't very much out there. Um, and so I, I thought this was a, a real need that people could use wh whatever kind of research they're doing. I was doing anthropological research. Other folks are doing clinical research, behavioral research, um, genetic research, and all sorts of different things. Um, I think we could all use uh, some of this guidance and, and some of this insight. And we in this team are really committed to a collaborative approach to addressing ethical issues, to identifying ethical issues and proposing uh, solutions and, and exploring those solutions in the real world. So we pulled together a task force of people with an interest in autism research ethics. Uh, so we involved potential research participants, so autistic people, autistic self-advocates, um, autistic researchers. We pulled in researchers who study autism, some of whom are autistic and some of whom are not. We pulled in uh, professionals who work with autistic people and parents who have, um, whose uh, sons and daughters are on the spectrum. And mm. these people often act as gatekeepers for research. So researchers might ask, you know, um, for permission to ask the autistic person that, that someone uh, knows. Mm. to participate in research. Um, and we also had representatives from advocacy organizations who, you know, of course, represent autistic folks um, sometimes, um, but also maybe asked, may have this ask uh, for research as well. And so we had a diverse group that we brought together. Um, you know, we really looked at a number of different perspectives, um, what wanted to have this productive conversation around what are the ethical issues that folks see in research and what are some of the um, strategies that we could try to create a research environment that's uh, ethical, that's accessible, that empowers people to contribute to research meaningfully and safely. Um, and so I'm really grateful to everyone who talked with me on this team and talked with each other on this team and uh, worked through this process uh, to come up with the report that we have, the, the suggestions we have for researchers, and to continue to reflect on these issues to this day. Cool. Before I kind of dive in a little more, can you just sort of explain what you mean? And it, it seems pretty straightforward, but I just want to double check. What do you mean sort of by, by participatory research? Sure, absolutely. So participatory research is an umbrella term. It can encompass a number of different approaches to research that have varying levels of involving people that might be participants in the research mm -hmm. or from the same communities as participants in the research mm -hmm. in other stages of the research process. Mm -hmm. um, so this can mean um, in the design process or the prioritization mm -hmm. process, like deciding what's an important thing to research. Yes. Coming up with the question um, can also involve um, acting as 
you know, researchers as part of the research team, collecting mm. data, analyzing data. Um, you know, in this project, this was ethical deliberation, so a bit distinct from from a, a data collection and analysis format of a research project. Mm. Mm. Um, in this in this project, the participatory nature was to deliberate, um, to go through a process that we call uh, moral deliberation or ethical deliberation, to brainstorm ethical issues, um, to review. The literature, um, mm -hmm. which which the the three of us um, conducted a literature review, I spearheaded that, um, and reflect on what might be missing, and then to propose these best practices. Um, but it does cover a, a wide range of research, and that's actually one of the things that we talked about a lot is how researchers could engage autistic people throughout multiple stages of mm -hmm. the research process, not just as research participants. So that's yeah, extremely yeah. important. No, that that that's really cool, and and I think that's something again that I think that I've start I've started to see some of the you know autistic folk and sort of so called kind of neurodiversity affirming folk um, uh, being kind of call, calling for you know is is so you know I'm thinking sort of just using kind of ABA again as a context you know maybe we're doing a, a study on some you know you you referenced. Uh, you know, uh, self-injurious behavior in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, so say we're doing a study on, you know, SIB, um, you know, the idea that we would sort of just recruit folks and start studying them, but none of that process would include autistic folks. The idea, mm -hmm. the, the question you're going to, you're at the research question, the, the data analysis, all that. And that's what folks are kind of really calling for these days. So that's really cool that, that, that it's a thing. So, <laughs> um, you know, that, that, that people are already doing, you know, in other fields. And so, you know, I think that's a really important message to folks. What I love about, uh, and, well, get to that in one second. <laughs> the, the, the articles that we're looking at today look at three areas that I think are, are just so powerful and, 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 again, really important for kind of anyone, but particularly, I think, again, in, in the behavior analysis field. Um, so the first article we're going to talk about is the one you've started to reference already um, related to kind of creating some best practices in terms of ethics. And we're going to touch on that uh -huh. one. Um, this other one on intersectionality, which is huge right now um, and, and a huge topic right now. And there's been a lot of uh, uh, there's some been some other interesting podcasts, which I can share sort of in the show notes that kind of touch on this um this piece and then another one which uh, the the title of the article is empowerment and decision making but more so i think what's what which i think is is great but i think a, a big piece in this article that's really important that i really want to touch on is 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 these concepts of assent and and consent which is just yeah. really huge right now um related so going kind of the the first article one thing i i, I loved kind of right away is you're 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 walking the talk as you do the research. So you're doing research on including autistic folks in research, but you're also right from the beginning of this study, even in in terms of sort of recruiting and and including these different task force members. You're already applying some of these strategies on on kind of the the I don't know the, the sort of the second or third page of the article, depending on. You know, mm -hmm. what, what font you use to print it out or whatever. Um, right. uh, there's there's a nice little table of strategies in, used by workshop organizers to facilitate mm -hmm. access inclusion for those task force members. You mm -hmm. know, and so I'm just gonna I just want to read this list off, which because I just think it's it's amazing. Use clear language and formatting, 
of course, but this one, send detailed arrival instructions, including maps and photographs of the airport arrival terminal from a first-person point of view. Solicit, solicit and share photographs and biographies of workshop attendees and staff. Prepare read-along copies of presentations distributed in advance during the, during the workshop. Uh, present and discuss guidelines for engagement and conversation during the workshop. Uh, provide multiple ways to engage, such as attending yeah. one, both, or neither days, having large group, small group, teleconference, written commentary. And best, maybe best of all, make available a, a, kind of a quote-unquote quiet room. I, I, just, I just thought this was just... First off, this this reminds me in a lot of ways, and for folks that you know, the, that might be designing a, a sort of a, a behavior support program for an autistic individual, you know, there I, I you know I see visual supports here, you know, I see you know I see sort of mm-hmm. um, you know kind of written descriptions of things in in you know concrete detail. So a lot of these strategies that we kind of use already you know, for behavior support, you know, you're kind of applying, you know, in, in, in a different way to, uh, to, to, to the task force participants. I just thought that was really cool. Thank you. Yeah, this was a very iterative process. You know, we, we um, were developing things, but also building on things that were previously developed and going mm-hmm. back to, you know, each of those phases throughout, right, kind of, kind of cycles. Um, so in, planning the workshop, you know, I had already uh, worked with autistic folks in a variety of contexts, um, you know, as had my collaborators. Mm-hmm. We engaged with, um, you know, in conferences, in academic conversations, in community conversations. Um, so there were, you know, some some folks we already knew, some connections we already had. But the other thing that I think is really cool about doing this kind of research, um, you know, for anyone who wants to get into doing research involving autistic folks, is that there's also a lot of really great resources out there. And as I said, increasingly so. Um, you know, there weren't uh, when I really started this research, but there's increasingly more work out there. So we got a lot of inspiration from uh, the Autism Cooperative Research Center's Inclusive Research Practice Guides and Checklists. This is a cooperative mm. research center out of Australia. Um, and so mm. they have some guidance, including very clear checklists for, you know, having uh, workshops or events uh, to get community feedback because we talk mm. about that being important, get community feedback, but you have to know a little bit in order to most effectively get that community feedback. And so there's, there is some stuff out in the literature and our stuff I hope we can contribute um, to there, there existing some of this literature so that researchers don't have to start uh, from square one although there will be always more specific things to learn uh, you know, within your specific context, the communities you're, you're working with. Um, and we had, you know, I'd also say, I should mention this, you know, we had folks coming in from, um, from a wide, a wide uh, geographic range across Canada. And so, yes, we also um, took those photographs at the airport to show mm-hmm. really how are you getting from when you land to when you reach us, so when you come into um, to our office. And I'll also say we did get a lot of um, insights from, you know, clinical ethics, um, from medical accessibility. Um, there's there's other areas outside of research ethics where people have been focused on accessibility, like how mm. do you create an accessible emergency room um, that mm-hmm. still touches on some of the same common threads. Research is, is a social context, so 
is therapy, so is the emergency room, so is the dentist's mm -hmm. office, so is a park, so is a transportation system. Um, so there's some things that we that we see in common there as well, um, focusing on sensory, uh, including multiple ways of communication, communicating mm -hmm. information visually and verbally, mm -hmm. um, these, these things that that people are already using in other contexts. We saw easy applicability within the context of our project as well. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com slash shop and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is diversity. Yeah, that's cool. Um, another thing which, you know, I think folks think about, but they don't always acknowledge is, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were members of that task force that, you know, didn't identify as autistic, that also found those things valuable. Absolutely. Um, I have been using these tips since, right, these strategies. Mm -hmm. um, since then, I um, often have maps and visual guides for how to get to my office. I was doing that when I was mm -hmm. working at the IRCM, the Institute of Research Clinique de Montréal, um, and, and people had commented that that was really helpful. Um, so I'm using it now in my office at Central Michigan University. And um, recently I feels recently, it was in 2020, but um, recently I moved I moved to a new location and one of the first things I did uh, was print out a map of how to get from the main building where my students have most of their classes to my office um, because it's just helpful for anyone, um, especially when I'm no longer right next to where they are all the time just to show, you know, this is how you get in here. And I was looking the other day and I thought I should take a picture of the door that you have to go through in order to get to my office, because that's confusing too. If you ever come to Michigan, I'll I'll show you. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, it's something that I that I use for everyone as part of a universal design strategy, because anyone might benefit from having a little bit of a visual mm -hmm. um, visual guidance, uh, just to, instead of an office number to come and find me. Absolutely, and we, and we won't we won't veer down this tangent too far. But you touch on you 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 use a, a phrase that I think some folks will be familiar with. Uh, Around, around kind of universal design and and universal design is something I think a lot of folks will have some idea about but I don't, I don't folks don't realize that these sorts of inclusion and sort of accessibility uh, you know type adaptations that are made to environments um, well, well they're certainly I think initially designed to benefit those folks that have you know more barriers people don't realize how helpful they will be to everyone and, and, uh -huh. and, and how, how life is made easier. Like, I think people walk into sort of an accessible building and don't think about sort of, oh, this is going to be great for the guy in the wheelchair. They just think this is a great, a, a really well-designed building. I wish more were mm -hmm. like that. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's, uh, I, I think that's just a, an important point again, that universal designs aren't just for this one sort of, you know, minority you know, or disabled population or whatnot. Yeah. In disability studies, we call it the curb cut effect. So a curb cut is that mm. cut out of the curb in the sidewalk um, where right. someone can wheel up onto the sidewalk from the road, like crossing yes. the street, wheel down, wheel up. 
this curb cut is useful for people who are using wheelchairs, yep. but also for people who are pushing strollers, totally. pulling luggage, who um, you know have all sorts of different needs. And so um, the idea with universal design, which has really come from architecture, but is applicable in there's universal design yep. for learning, for example, yep. with teaching, yep. um, we yep. use a lot of those strategies, is that while well, you know, the curb cut is more accessible to more people than having a curb to step up on. So why not have the curb cut be the default um, so that more people can use the space? I love the curb cut at the grocery store because it makes it so much easier to get the shopping cart to my vehicle. I mean, it's just yeah. amazing. But it's not made for that. It's, it's like you said, it was made for the, the person in the wheelchair. So there, that's awesome. Uh, one other thing I, I wanted to touch on, on on the broader scope, just around kind of how you do your research. And I know it's not only... Um, uh, you folks that are doing this in research, I've started to see this a little more often now, uh-huh. is this idea of, 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 a, of, of a regular abstract and then a lay abstract underneath. I think uh-huh. that's just such a brilliant and, and really inclusive kind of concept to just have a second explanation that removes the jargon that puts things in, you know, kind of regular kind of language. You know, I, I actually prefer to read the bottom one myself <laughs> more often than the regular abstract. Now I find it easier to understand, easier to follow. Um, and, 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 I, and I've seen, I'm seeing this kind of happening a little bit more um, in, 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 in research where folks I think are, are, are a little more forward thinking. I think that's just a really helpful piece. I just want to add that. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing that with a a number of journals have a requirement. All of their articles will be published with some version uh, of a lay abstract or a plain language abstract. Um, And many even have uh, tips and tools that you can use if you're not familiar with this kind of writing to check the reading level of your of your materials and uh, have suggestions for improving them a little bit, improving the clarity and shortening the, the words using more everyday language. Really cool. Okay, digging in a bit into this into this first article, and, I, and I'm I'm not selecting these by date published, um, <laughs> just more by order read by me, um, and, uh, and 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 so this one, and there was a couple uh, sort of on this topic, but this one in particular was is called uh, "Person Oriented Ethics for Autism Research: Creating Best Practices Through Engagement with Autism and Autistic Communities." Um, two things from the, from the top, um, that are kind of discussed in the abstract and I, and I think touched on in maybe some previous articles as well. Um, first of all, I guess the first question is what do we mean by person oriented ethics? Yeah. So person oriented ethics and person oriented research ethics, this is a term that Eric Christen and I have coined, uh, and a concept that we've created that it focuses on the relational aspects of ethics. So not the regulatory aspects like, oh, I, I have to do a study, I have to fill out my paperwork, I have to submit it to the to the ethics committee, uh, and I have to, you know, do my audit, all these things. Not not the paperwork side of it, not necessarily the the rules and regulations, but but the experiential and relational aspects of research and, and really looking at how research, as I mentioned before, is a social context and it's a relational context between mm. The researcher, the research participant, and and very importantly uh, for us as well, broader communities. Um, you know, I 
I often talk about uh, these broader communities thinking about, you know, like autistic people do all sorts of things. And one of those things can be participating in research, can be conducting research, can be consuming research. And that's something that we think about as well is what is this research doing in the world? Um, you know, who's reading it and interpreting it and how are, how are they using it? Um, and so we, we wanted a model to really think about these issues and, and prompt reflection on these issues in research, um, which might be a little bit different than, than the questions um, that come up in a regulatory framework. And we were inspired by uh, this concept of person-centeredness and, and mm -hmm. person-orientedness that comes up in um, in a variety of contexts. And so we, we reviewed um, some of those variety of contexts. In a clinical setting, there are patient-oriented um, and patient-centered approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, in my own field in anthropology, there's person-centered ethnography. Um, and so we brought together some of this literature in clinical ethics and some of this literature in research ethics um, and looked at sort of the different ways that researchers are using person-centeredness or person orientation um, in their work as inspiration for uh, what kinds of reflective questions we, we really ought to be asking. And so the model that we came up with and from synthesizing all of this and looking at the gaps uh, is organized around five guideposts is, is how we call them. So sort of things that can guide a researcher um, through this reflection process. Um, so there is respect for holistic personhood. Respect for persons is a cornerstone of research ethics and has been for a long time. Um, but we, we broaden that to talk about respect for holistic personhood, really considering the personal and interpersonal and biopsychosocial world of, of the participant. Um, and for us, that really means valuing what participants have to share um, really recognizing that participants have something to contribute to the research process. Um, I could talk about times when that doesn't happen in a bit, but to get through mm -hmm. this first. Um, and, and considering potential participants' needs and strengths. Um, and so that's where we, we also do pull a lot of inspiration from, from some of these things that have previously been published on those needs and strengths so we can consider them proactively. Um, there's also empowerment and decision-making. As you mentioned, we have an article that, that entirely focuses on this guidepost. Um, and that means making it easier for people to make choices of their own free will, which we see not as just a, a yes or no. Can someone consent or ask them to research? Can someone you know, make this choice, but really that uh, this ability to make a choice can be supported uh, by things that the researchers do, by choices that the researchers make. Uh, we have a focus on researcher-participant relationships. I've already talked, that, talked about that quite a bit. We really see this as a relational context and that those relationships matter for research. Uh, we talk about individualization, so making the research process fit the unique needs of each person, um, not, not just the respect for holistic personhood, which might think of in general, you know, what needs and strengths might autistic participants have, but also individualization, um, you know, what, what's the diversity um, within that group? What might this particular individual need, regardless of any, anything else uh, about them or any assumptions someone might make. And then the last one are, are, is acknowledgement of lived world. Um, mm. And this is really thinking about the world in which participants live, thinking about how things outside the research process absolutely impact what goes on within the research process, because it doesn't happen mm. in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is applicable to any context. I've had a student um, who worked on this in the context of research involving older adults who may have dementia or who 
may face assumptions um, about their cognition because of their mm -hmm. age. Um, it's, you know, we, we see it used in a variety of contexts where we're grateful that others have read and are citing our work. Um, but we really applied it uh, within within this specific context of autism research or research involving autistic participants. It doesn't have to be autism research. Autistic people may participate in research about transportation or emergency room design or any of those other things that I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier as well. Cool. And so, and so then I guess the, then the sort of the next, the, the, the purpose of this article was really to kind of dig in with the task force and, and mm -hmm. really kind of unpack these guideposts. Is that was sort of the idea or? Yeah. So the purpose of that article, the article published in uh, Sage's Autism Journal um, mm -hmm. is, is to really outline how we formed the task force, how we tried to make that task force process um, productive and accessible, and how the task force as a group, we applied these principles to the specific situation of you know, autism research ethics, of research ethics for studies involving uh, autistic participants. So, and we have suggestions organized under each of these guideposts. So not just generally how can a researcher reflect, but specifically within this context, what might what are the results of that reflection? Mm -hmm. You know, what might be things to consider, um, and what might be things to do, like concrete action items that researchers can take. And I don't want I don't want you to have to sort of read the whole article to me, but can <laughs> maybe give give me some examples of kind of some of the stuff folks came up with. Yeah. Um, so there were a number of suggestions. Um, yeah, so first I will say, you know, a number of our suggestions are things that are definitely applicable in every context, but are sometimes not always respected um, for autistic participants in research. And so we really wanted to reiterate um, some of these things. So some of the suggestions may sound obvious uh, to, to your listeners and to you, mm -hmm. um, but have not been treated as obvious in all of the literature before. Um, so things like autistic people have a right to participate in research or to refuse to do so. Um, we, you know, we know researchers um, and researchers have written in uh, another book that Eric Rosen and I have out on research involving participants with cognitive difference, uh, cognitive disability and differences, um, where, you know, researchers might go for younger participants because then they can get parental permission and to sidestep um, some of that consent and assent process with, you know, consent with adults and assent with, with older youth with older children. Um, and so we really felt that it was important to reiterate some of these, these basic rights within research, um, the right to participate, the right to say no. Um, we have you know, another point where we talk about um, the right to privacy and confidentiality, um, which autistic people are not always granted as, as much privacy as non-autistic people in their daily lives, depending on their context, the specific situation they're in. Um, so how can the researcher you know, really try to respect privacy as much as possible? We also had some suggestions that are maybe a little more um, specific to things that are common needs or experiences of autistic people. Uh, so one thing that came up in a lot of different contexts, um, and we talk about in some other articles in even more detail, are sensory needs. Um, so we had a number of suggestions around uh, the sensory context of research and that researchers should really pay attention to that sensory context and talk to autistic people about their perceptions of that context. Um, a, a couple different people, you know, because it can be different. Um, many, many, although not all, autistic people um, can be particularly sensitive to noise, um, to 
to volume, to light, to smells. Um, and so these are all things to, to be aware of in trying to create um, a sensory-friendly environment. Fluorescent lighting can be particularly uh, stressful, and so trying to have um, other lighting options. Um, but even beyond that, um, having options in general is, is a huge one that had come up. So we can think of some things that are, that are commonly, um, that are common sensory sensitivities, but that's not, never going to capture everyone's unique individual experience. So our task force members also suggested having something like, uh, uh, the ability for people to come in and look at the space ahead of time, um, mm. and, and inform the researchers like, okay, um, you know, this mostly works well for me, but, um, you know, the bathroom has hand dryers and I can hear them even when we're in this space. So is it possible to be somewhere farther away from a bathroom or mm. something like that? Um, they, I have also been using in my more recent research uh, as another suggestion from this task force, a pre-interview checklist, an mm. accessibility checklist that says, and we're going to do an interview. Um, you know, here are some common things that might come up. Um, for example, you know, here are some things I do during an interview that some people like and some people don't like. Mm. Make eye contact. Nice. Would you like me to do make eye contact? Would you like me to avoid eye contact? Mm. Do you not really care either way? Mm. Um, uh, that sort of thing. And then always have that space to add, you know, what else? What else is there that I can do? Um, and the reason that, that we do it, that I'm, that the reason that I'm doing it this way um, is because our task force members also brought up that it is great to have the opportunity to express those needs, but it can be also a real onus on the participant to always be the one brainstorming like, how to address mm -hmm. those needs. And so I really start with some things I know I can do. Yeah. Um, some things I've heard before, some things that are modifiable about the space um, or about the way that we communicate. You know, we're having a video uh, chat right now. Do you want the video on or the video off? Mm. Uh, that kind of thing. But then also having that space now that I've established that, you know, I've thought about this. Um, I'm flexible. I, I respect the different needs that people might have. Is there anyone that I'm forgetting? Because it'll never capture mm -hmm. everything, but mm -hmm. it splits it splits that burden a little bit. Um, so that's one that came up. Um, and we also suggest, you know, if it's possible within the research study, and it almost always is, um, to allow people to bring comfort items or fidget toys um, with them. And fidget toys are becoming increasingly popular. Mm -hmm. um, They've been much harder to, to find or something that was less socially acceptable for a while, mm -hmm. uh, which has been a really interesting social change that's happened mm -hmm. since I started this research. Um, but just an explicit reminder there that like, yeah, if you can, let people bring, encourage people to bring things, proactively demonstrate that you're creating a, a space that's open to fidgeting or any other sensory needs folks might have. The second secret word is consent. Right on. Uh, I, I love the whole kind of the, 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 the idea of the checklist and sort of the proactive piece because um, I think you're right. I mean, I, th I think we're, we're, we're putting a lot of pressure, you know, on, 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 on participants to sort of kind of to kind of come up with these. And if you know they're sort of you know, a, a set sort of, you know, in, environmental modifications that you can just make that aren't mm -hmm. going to, that aren't going to matter, aren't going to affect your research. I, I, I know it probably gets more interesting when, and, and I, I think especially 
for you know folks kind of in our field where you know they're, uh, they they want it's all about control and I don't mean hmm. I don't mean uh, I don't mean sort of uh, from a from a coercion perspective but from like you know from from an experiment in terms of experimental control and kind of having you know you know every every everything kind of similar in both environments so that you know kind of whether your independent variable is 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 the thing at work here and uh-huh. so, and so, you know, I, I, I could see some pushback on, on, on some of these sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, adaptations, whether they be sensory or things like the fidget toys and whatnot. Although I a hundred percent agree. Um, I could see, I, I could see sort of researchers kind of arguing against, you know, allowing the child or what, or, or participant to have those things with them because somehow, you know, that'll sort of you know, mess up the results of the study. But I sort of think if, if a fidget toy and, you know, some, and, and a really loud sort of machine in another room are going to result in, in, in sort of challenging behavior, then why do we need, why do we need to do a study? You, 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 uh-huh. you know, you know what's going to cause the problem. Give them the fidget toy, reduce the sound, if you're still having challenging behavior, then you can continue your study. If you're not anymore, you can send that participant home with a fidget toy and and a, and a set of headphones, and and uh, you know uh-huh. you've you've got a happy set of parents. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, I think uh, I, I think the, I think these are these are really really valuable and really powerful. I I wonder about. Um, and 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 we may end up just moving into sort of, moving into into the kind of consent article um, uh, as a result of this question, um, uh, the empowerment article. But I wonder about sort of these. Uh, well, first off, I wonder about the kids, and I think you, you brought up that point initially, and 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 it and it resonated for me, the idea that when we recruit recruit you know children and many 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 autism autistic related kind of studies are on kids. Most of them are on kids. Um, in fact, there, there's, you know, there's been a real, there was a real call for adult research a few years ago and we're starting to see more now, but for the most part, most of the research is still around kids. And you're right. That recruitment isn't, you know, that, that kid isn't getting the recruitment letter. It's the parent uh-huh. and, and the parent is making that decision. What were, what was there any discussion or kind of thought around the idea of, uh, of uh, of of that sort of like that seems like philosophically maybe ethically like a, a bit of a dilemma that you've got these these kids that are going to have things done to them um, you know in the context of a, a study they're not going to understand what's happening and they're not going to know and yet their parents have signed a piece of paper saying they can be in it anyway. Yeah, so this has been a theme in the autism research ethics literature. Um, Alexandra Perry, in particular, um, writes at length about sort of autism and pediatric bioethics um, and this idea that um, there might be various conflicts um, when parents are giving permission for a child to participate in research, particularly if that research is oriented around controversial things like cure or different treatment, mm. or, you know, the idea of what autism is, yeah. right? Um, and, and Perry's work really looks at um, 
the fact that the, the social context uh, in which, you know, many, but not all, um, autistic people, autistic adults have different perspectives than many, but not all parents of young autistic children or of autistic children in general, or sometimes even parents of autistic adults. Um, and so within that context where, where there is this conflict um, and, and broader social conflict, cultural conflict about, you know, for example, whether genetic research is ethical, um, mm. whether whether one should look for biomarkers, um, mm. what can one do with biomarkers, mm. is this, uh, <laughs> sorry to be, you know, to be bringing up, but is this going in a eugenics direction? Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, these, these are, these are definitely things that, that people are concerned about. And so within that context, um, Ethicists, bioethicists, uh, may be concerned that um, the the children, uh, when they grow up, may have different priorities than the parents who gave permission. Mm -hmm. um, and so, some of the suggestions um, that that Perry and, and others have made for this is, you know, involving autistic adults in the design of the study and in the mm -hmm. design of consent and assent forms. Mm. Um, and certainly there are um, general recommendations and suggestions that we can take from pediatric ethics, um, from, from, from bioethics related to um, research with children from childhood ethics in general, whether it's medical or not, um, of you know, really engaging the child potential research participant in decision-making around the research as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a, the child is not able to give legally binding consent, um, but they can still participate in assent, mm -hmm. um, which is, is the term that we often use to talk about um, saying yes to research in a non-legally binding consent kind of way, right? Mm -hmm, so someone mm -hmm. else may have to give permission, um, often they're not always a parent, um, but, but a child can still participate in that conversation or at least many uh, participate in communication about it, whether it's a verbal conversation or not. Um, it, uh, it's, you know, developmentally appropriate, so it gets more difficult um, with, you know, particularly there are a number of studies that are enrolling people at or even before birth, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so, and so that can that can um, certainly raise you know new problems that maybe can right. that can't, be, can't be addressed as much through just involve the child in a developmentally appropriate way. And that's why there are these suggestions for like involve different types of adults and involve parents, involve researchers, involve um, autistic people who might be parents or researchers as well who might have that lived experience that can really contribute to the design of the study and and the design of the consent process and, you know, build in those opportunities for decision-making beyond just the decision to say yes or no to mm -hmm. the research as well. And that's something that, that I'm really interested in um, that had come up. So uh, we talk about process consent. Uh, and so it's not just saying yes or no to the research and then that's mm. it and then it's done. Mm. Um, but saying yes at multiple points. So right. check, checking back in with children as they get older. Um, to see if they're still happy to be involved in the research, um, you know, building in, building in outs, building in opportunities um, for people to to make decisions as they go along. And I suppose there's there's going to be a, a I could see I could see some of that being, you know, not out not so um, appetizing for lack of a better term for some researchers because. You know the idea, especially when you're doing some of these sort of more kind of longitudinal kinds of studies, and and you have a 
a child sort of three years in decide, you know, they don't want to be involved anymore and having and having that option to sort of pull out, um, um, you know, you know, could mess with your results. And so and so, you know, kind of being being willing to kind of kind of kind of go that direction. Um, I also and it, and there's so there's the there's the child piece there's sort of that age piece and just, you know, and just, you know, neurodiverse or not just you know, being a five-year-old child and making big decisions like this is going to be difficult. And so I like the idea of, you know, sort of incorporating different, different ways of assenting and consenting through the process. What about, what about these, this could be adults as well, I suppose, but what about these kids and kids in particular who, you know, maybe either have a, some sort of cognitive disability or they're just lacking an ability to communicate or whatnot. What, 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 what hope do they have? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we talk about this a lot in terms of like increasing accessibility of the consent process, right? Um, and so one thing that underpins a lot of this is a presumption of, of capacity, a presumption of competence, a, a presumption that, you know, avoiding an assumption that an autism diagnosis might by default have an impact on someone's ability to participate in the consent process um, or, you know, that someone should be excluded from research that they would have to consent to because of a diagnosis. Um, there, this is something that, that a lot of people have been concerned about, that autistic folks are excluded from research that concerns them. Um, I've, you know, I've read studies on, you know, what is the acceptability of this, um, you know, this particular type of therapy um, or this particular tool that's used in therapy, um, the therapies for you know, autistic people, um, and no autistic people were asked in the study, like mm-hmm. whether it was acceptable to them or not. Parents sure. were asked or, or um, you know, teachers were asked or other people were asked to, to sort of talk about it. Um, but this is something that's just like so directly relevant to autistic people and they were not asked. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the first point there is, is not presuming that an autism diagnosis by definition would make it more difficult for someone to give consent to research or to give assent to research, to be involved in that decision-making process. That said, certainly we recognize that there may be people may have communication differences, um, may have um, other barriers that might make it difficult, uh, more difficult to engage in, in the consent process, which, by the way, within research ethics has has a lot of other um, barriers and access issues for, for anybody. So some mm-hmm. of these tips, again, are very useful for anybody doing any kind of research mm-hmm. with any kind of participants. Um, so. Some things that um, the task force has suggested that can help make the consent process easier, more accessible, you know, empower people to make, um, to make decisions focuses on this idea of communicating the information um, well and um, maximizing the possibility for comprehension because information and comprehension are, are major components of of consent. So um, this can include uh, using things like plain language or easy read versions of consent forms. Um, so a consent form for anybody should always have a, a low reading level, um, but this may be especially important uh, in this context. An easy read version may incorporate visuals 
with the text, so presenting that information in multiple ways, having one concept per line. It may take a few more pages, but it's less dense um, and, and less, you know, for many readers, uh, less intimidating um, than like a really tight 10-point font kind of uh, mm. consent form. Um, some researchers have used addendums to the consent form that present the information in a different way, mm. um, such as audiovisual, like a recording mm, uh, explaining cool. the research and what someone will do. Yeah. And uh, I know of at least one researcher um, we cite in this study who uses um, who uses a social story version mm -hmm. of an assent form. It's, it's labeled mm. in the paper as a consent form, but it was actually asking for assent and, and mm parents and I think possibly also teachers um, gave permission. And what, what I really liked about this study was that the researcher, um, Daisy Lloyd, used a picture system that uh, this research took place in school um, that the school was already using. So it was a picture system that was really familiar to the potential mm. participants mm. Um, contextually. So I look at that and I give it as an example sometimes when I give this as a, as a when I explain the research using slides and I say, now this wouldn't necessarily be appropriate for the potential participants that you're recruiting. Um, if they don't use this kind of picture system, mm -hmm. if they don't use a picture system at all, they may, may actually find that, you know, really inaccessible or, or even, um, even offensive. Mm -hmm. But in this context, you know, this is, this is how the potential participants uh, were already communicating. And so that really helps um, with, you know, understanding the information and being able to, to answer. Um, the other component that I wanted to bring up that, that might impact someone's ability to participate in the, in the ASIN or consent process is, is more of an experiential factor, um, which is that in the, in the literature and in people's personal experiences, this comes up that, that a number of uh, folks on the spectrum have had a lot of experience in institutions of various sorts. Yes. Um, you know, whether sort of capital I institutions, someone talks about being, you know, in a, in a psychiatric hospital or in mm -hmm. an institution, or just small I institutions. In, in the anthropological sense, we talk about, you know, school is an institution, yep. work is an institution, um, you know, there's a number of institutional forces um, in folks' lives. And so, you know, in either of those, often in these contexts, it has been easier um, for autistic folks to just say yes to please the people in positions of power. Mm. Now, I know in a lot of contexts, in education especially, there's a big focus on encouraging people to make choices, mm -hmm. um, and that you now it's increasingly been integrated, but not everyone had that experience. Um, and so someone who has had an experience where it has always been advantageous to say yes, you know, mm -hmm. strategic to say yes, um, you know, maybe more inclined to say yes, um, in a research context. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's especially important, and, and this is true for any study, and, and researchers always do this, but in this context, especially important to really clarify that yes and no are both acceptable answers. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you talked about uh, researchers maybe being disappointed uh, if someone withdraws from a study a couple years in, or, you know, researchers may also be disappointed if someone says no to participating in a study. Mm -hmm. And I actually talk about this in my chapter in, uh, in the research involving participants with cognitive disability and difference book. Um, my chapter is called Vulnerability, Empowerment, and Dissent, the Importance of mm. Saying No. And the point I really make there is that it may be disappointing um, if someone says no. I mean, I, I 
I designed my study because I think that it's a cool study and an interesting topic and that it'll mm -hmm, help people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I really try to frame it in, in that paper. And I, I find this really helpful in my own work as well, that if some people say no, that means I've designed the consent process really well. It's working because yes and yes. no are both valid options. Yes. Um, and so I might even get a little a little concerned if everyone says yes to everything all the time, because there's lots of reasons why someone might might not want to participate in research. And it might be related to the research that might not be a study that, that they think is cool or interesting or will help people. It might not be related to the research at all because of that acknowledgement of lived world, that broader context of people's lives. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they have work that day. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe they, they, have other things they would rather be doing um, and and that's okay the third secret word is access that's this this is so you two points I gotta come back to here that are that I think are just huge first first the smaller one but I love um, is is the visual support one so you talked about because I do, I do see more and more folks are including sort of visual supports and visual aids. Often, you know, often in a, uh, using a, a program that a lot of folks will be familiar with called Board Maker, and mm -hmm. sort of these specific kind of symbols and and you know, there's there's sort of become a belief that every person with autism uh, can totally understand these symbols and somehow they were born <laughs> that way. But, um, <laughs> but in any case, you've, you've got these sort of symbols in place. And I saw, I saw, I mean, I saw a nice sort of accessible playground photo the other day and it was a playground and had a wonderful visual board explaining how the playground worked using board maker symbols. Oh, that's a great. Idea. Cool. Yeah, that's nice. But you make a great point that not everybody in, in in a study or in, in in an intervention or in any kind of setting where you're you're doing work with autistic folk are going to use that particular visual support system. Mm -hmm. So I love I love the idea of in your recruitment finding out you know how they communicate, finding out what their visual support system is, finding out what their sensory needs are, and so on and so forth, and then individualizing those in your study versus making a broad swipe that everyone's going to get two by two, uh, you know, board maker symbols Velcroed on a board. Um, and uh -huh. maybe only 30% of them are actually going to use that system to communicate or to sort of understand what's going on. So I just, I, I just, the, I just wanted to sort of, you know, praise that and, and, and reinforce that because I think that's really important. And I don't think that's something folks think about with the choice piece though. This is, this has been something, uh, I'm just going to be itching to, you know, <laughs> here as, as you're speaking, not, not, not to refute anything you're saying, but to support it a hundred percent. One thing about choice that I, I think we see in behavior analysts see a lot. Um, and I, I think a lot of behavior analysts also agree that choice is really important and it's important to include choice in, in things. But what I think some folks don't understand is that being able to, being able to make a choice is a skill. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm being able to sort of look at two different options and understand that by, by using our verbal behavior and emitting the sound that comes out in English as yes, doesn't necessarily associate with an understanding that you're picking the thing on the left. Um, you know, uh, it, and it could be more like you said, uh, you know, 
not understanding the choice and and making and and just and, and just and just saying the words to sort of appease you know maybe an authoritative person or 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 whoever who's ever asking them or maybe even just to sort of escape having to discuss the question anymore because when you mm-hmm. ask me a question I get anxious because I don't know what to say um and so you know and so just just the idea of just sort of giving a choice once you know I think is really risky because a lot of the times I I've, I mean, I've seen so many times in, in just in, in, my, in my clinical work where, you know, I'll talk to an autistic individual, they'll say yes to something, you know, like you're ready to go out to the park and want to throw your shoes on and we'll go. Yes. You know, uh-huh. because that's sort of the rote statement they're used to saying. And then when you get ready to go, they don't want to go. <laughs> they don't want to go anywhere. They want. I, I just want to keep watching TV. I, I never wanted to do anything in the first place. I don't even know what you mean by the park or what going to the park means. Uh-huh. I just know that if I say yes, you'll smile, you know, or something, you know, and and then and that'll kind of reinforce my behavior, and 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 I'll kind of keep doing it that way. So I think it's, I think it's just massively important in research, but I think even more so you know, um, in intervention when I'm sort of speaking to kind of the behavior analyst audience that, you know, you're, 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 you're taking what, 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 what Ariel's saying and, 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 you know, constantly thinking about giving that choice over and over and over again and giving different ways of presenting that choice and, and looking at different ways of sort of measuring assent, you know, um, especially, you know, in these young kids, I've seen a lot of talk with some folks lately that I, that I, that I like that, that are doing some good work where they're really, there, there's been a lot of talk with some younger behavior analysts around how to incorporate assent into sort of early intervention. And, yeah. you know, every time the child avoids the table, you don't make them sit at it, you know, um, mm-hmm. or every time the child starts, you know, you know, maybe, maybe crying or screaming or whatever, when you're doing some sort of task, that's probably a hint <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that maybe at that moment they don't want to be involved in that task. Um, so I, ju- I think I just, yeah, not really a question here, but I just really think that it's super important. That's what I was going to ask you is, you know, in that context when someone says yes, but, but doesn't want to go to the park, like how do you know they don't want to go to the park? What do, what do you notice? Well, yeah. So, well, first off, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, a, a refusal to, not not getting off the couch, you know, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or or you you've um you've put your you you've handed them their jacket and they've thrown it on the ca- on on the chair, or or they actually, yeah, or or, or maybe they engage in some sort of challenging behavior and they get aggressive or whatever mm-hmm. because you're you're trying to sort of push the issue. So you see, you you see behavior that indicates no even though they verbalized yes yeah and this is something that we also recommend and have seen in in the literature researchers will talk about is really paying attention to those nonverbal signs mm. um mm. as much as we can some of us right now are doing research that is only verbal because we're not face to face but um if you you know have the opportunity or use whatever communication you have even there's even nonverbal in in non face to face if someone stops responding to me um you know stops writing me back or something like that mm-hmm. um but uh yeah to really pay attention to those nonverbal signs and this can be really helpful also if for whatever reason it, the person's involved in research but didn't go through the consent process they're mm. they're, they're too young or um 
I didn't have capacity to, to consent for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Um, but, but also for folks who did, who did go through a, a lengthy, you know, consent or asset, that's part of that process consent. Um, it's just monitoring for other signs, for nonverbal signs that someone doesn't want to do this anymore. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, and again, just for folks, I, 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 again, I'm going to have links to all these articles. This, 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 this uh, initial person-oriented research article and 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 the uh, the uh, you know the the empowerment decision-making article, they both have really great sort of um, uh, tables that really give lots of really concrete examples about sort of what to do in different situations of different sort of phases of research planning throughout. Um, you know what to do when you're sharing the research as it relates to all these guideposts and, 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 and a really powerful tool. I might even, you know, uh, make up a little sort of, um, uh, you know, if, 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 if maybe over, over the holidays, if, if my brain wants to make some, you know, some Instagram kind of, um, you know, uh, posts kind of sharing some of these uh, suggestions to folks, cause I think they're really powerful. Cool. Um, um, but looking, just kind of looking at uh, at, at sort of uh, the time as as we're having a discussion, I do want to just kind of slide over to this one other article that you that you, you, the team did around um, uh, intersectionality because this is another yeah. really um, relevant and important area right now in behavior analysis in particular. A lot of folks are talking about this now. Some folks don't see any importance to this whatsoever. Um, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, that sort of thing. We're all the same, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and, and that, that, that's, I'm not speaking to those folks necessarily because um, um, uh, there, there's probably some bigger discussions there. But um, just uh, can you tell us a little bit about 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 this article and and, and kind of what you were looking at and 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 kind of and how intersectionality is so important in, in research? Yeah, so I know you've talked about intersectionality on the podcast before, but just in case anyone's listening to this one as as their very first uh, introduction, just to start with like a definition of intersectionality. Inter intersectionality is a um, a concept. A term was coined by uh, Crenshaw, a black feminist author, legal scholar. Um, working at, um, well, the intersection of, of race and gender, although intersections can refer to, you know, any uh, identity or category someone finds themselves placed in, whether they identify with it or not. Um, and what what Crenshaw um, looked at in, in terms of law that I think really clearly highlights what intersectionality is, it's, it's that intersection of race and gender and the way that power differentials in society are experienced intersectionally, not additively, not just as someone might experience racism and sexism, but that that combined racism-sexism um, is, is distinct. Um, so, you know, black men experience anti-blackness in a different way than black women experience anti-blackness or what's sometimes called massage noir. And the, the legal example that I think makes this really clear is, um, Crenshaw looked at legal cases where uh, employment, employment discrimination cases where um, the ruling was, well, um, black women not getting promoted or, or not getting hired, I forget which it was, in this organization isn't uh, sexism because other women were promoted and isn't racism mm -hmm. because um, other black people were promoted. Um, but Crenshaw saying it's still, it's intersectional. It's intersectional racism, sexism. It's a particular experience that is still discriminatory but is erased um, and and so 
that's how we use intersectionality, particularly in this paper, is to consider who is erased um, from autism research. So I mentioned earlier that we were really concerned with um, studies, you know, excluding um, autistic people. Uh, there may be certainly risks to participating in a study, um, but there's also risks to not participating in research or to research not including, uh, not including diverse participants. And so um, there, there is increasingly a lot of research that involves uh, autistic people, um, autistic adults, as you had mentioned earlier, uh, the perspectives of autistic people, not just the genetic material, you know, mm. for example, but, but really mm -hmm. looking at things that, that are important to people. Not that genetics aren't important to people, but um, perspectives and experiences. Um, there are still, however, some autistic people are more represented than others. Um, so there's broader cultural stereotypes of autism, you know, particularly in North America mm -hmm. as being linked to masculinity and yep. whiteness and high socioeconomic status, some of which is an artifact of sort of where autism was diagnosed in a university center that may have served primarily mm -hmm. white, higher socioeconomic status folks. Um, and uh, sometimes the research can, you know, inadvertently reproduce these stereotypes, or sometimes, you know, advertently <laughs> uh, reproduce these stereotypes. Um, and, and for researchers, I think there's really a tension here between, um, you know, in terms of sampling, wanting the sample to be specific enough that the interpretation of results is more clear, um, but diverse enough that uh, the results are generalizable to to a broader number of, of people. Um, this concern that you know a study that only included white men might not or white boys might not be applicable um, to all autistic people, right? Um, and so, in this paper, we really run through. Um, what has been written in autism research ethics um, and inspired by our conversations as well with the task force um, in terms of the intersections of autism or autisticness or disability with uh, sex and gender, with socioeconomic status, with uh, communication. So we talked about you know, people who communicate verbally or not verbally um, and um, with culture or different things that sometimes get glossed as culture. We talk about culture and language and geography, um, a number of different things that get brought up. Um, and again, finding, you know, unsurprisingly to anyone who engaged with, who is engaged with intersectionality, that folks who are marginalized elsewhere in society are also marginalized in the research process and specifically maybe erased um, in the research process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of the point of that article is really encouraging um, diverse recruitment strategies, mm -hmm. um, and there's also some some specific suggestions that that we have in there. Um, so, you know, for example, um, something that that many researchers and autistic people and um, advocates have been talking about lately is uh, the intersection of autism and gender nonconformity, mm. or um, diverse gender identification. And so, you know, one easy suggestion there is maybe allowing um, a more open-ended gender identification or mm -hmm. um, more inclusive gendered language in recruitment materials because someone, you know, it may be completely unintentional exclusion. Um, it's, not, it's not that the researcher sat down and said, you know, I, I really only want male people to participate in this study, but the the 
the language only gave male and female options. And if someone doesn't identify um, mm -hmm. with either of those terms, they may say, oh, well, you know, the study's not for me. I don't see myself um, in this study. Or, um, you know, if the study says we, we want to recruit, you know, women with autism, people who don't identify as women may, may not mm. participate in that study, even if it is trying to address that women with yeah. autism are underrepresented in research. Yeah. Um, so, so this is just one, one of the, the many suggestions that, that came up in there in terms of just um, having the process, the, the research process, um, take into consideration the diversity in autism and autistic communities um, mm -hmm. and, and try to avoid, you know, unintentionally sort of creating a, uh, an assumption about who's going to participate, but intentionally thinking about about the diverse needs that folks may have for for access to the research process on intersectional grounds. Well, and I think about that that example you just gave, and I mean even even sort of the the research questions, you know, can be you know reevaluated, you know, using you know using this this article. I mean. To, you know, you know, maybe we shouldn't even be asking the question, are women underrepresented, you know, in, in whatever, mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's, you, it, it, it's, it's no longer, there, there's no longer just two categories, you know, uh, not that there ever was, but mm -hmm. there, you know, we, there was only for a long time, there was only two that were, you know, sort of recognized in kind of mainstream media. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it also speaks to sort of, you know, reevaluating the kind of research you're doing and the questions you're asking. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, yeah. And again, it, and again, it's, it's it, all, all, all the articles that, that we're going to share on, on, in the show notes today are, are really nice, nicely formatted and, and kind of well laid out so that I, you know, and, and I don't know if this was intentional as well. I mean, there's some stuff in here, like you know, some of the tables that are, you know, tables are always going to be sometimes, you know, smaller print and, 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 and maybe, maybe more difficult to follow, but they're nicely categorized. Um, they remind me, there's a, there's a journal, um, in behavior analysis called behavior analysis and practice that uh, a lot of folks published in. And I've always liked that journal solely because of the visual display of the articles that they put in there and they make, the, just, they just make them really, you know, accessible. And, and so oh, I nice. find, I'll check it out. Yeah. I find, and I find that you're, you're, your your research is also just really accessible for for just reading and kind of um you know uh, you know I I can just flip over to um you know page oh I guess this one doesn't have a page number but I, I can flip <laughs> over to page blah and um and see the you know the race race ethnicity geography and language sort of intersectionality section get an idea of, of of some suggestions there you know, and kind of, and kind of incorporate those. And I also talked about those tables in the other paper, which are just, again, are, are really helpful. And I'm, and I think this is the kind of research that needs to continue to happen, um, that gives practitioners, you know, um, uh, you know, really kind of concrete action steps that they can, you know, can, can take and, and kind of, and kind of take forward. And I think, that's a lot of what, what your work is doing. So I, I, I just want to say I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're still hoping. Yeah. So really, really great, great series of articles and, and a really interesting discussion today. What, what, uh, what, 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 are you, what, what are the next projects? What are you working on now? I know you're no longer, uh, I don't think you're, you're, you're in Canada anymore. So 
Um, uh, you're back back in the states. So what what kind of work are you doing these days? Yeah, I am no longer in Canada, although I'm I'm pretty close for someone in the U.S. Two True. two and a half hours from the border. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So so I didn't I didn't stray too far. Uh-huh. Um, but I uh, I've been in uh, Michigan now since uh, 2019. So I started mm. this position uh, at Central Michigan University, and I as I you know we mentioned before, I do a lot of teaching. I teach ethics and social sciences to uh, um, to medical students, um, and I'm still continuing uh, research on on issues that are important um, to autistic folk, and on this idea of sort of the autism concept, a social world, and 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 ethics. Um, and so I'm still continuing some of this research. Um, still, uh, you know, talk with uh, many of my colleagues from this project um, on ways that we can um, really incorporate these suggestions into new studies moving forward and continue that collaborative and deliberative process. So, uh, you know, keep an eye out or an ear out, keep your senses open for uh, more things to come um, Mm -hmm. on this project. And I also implemented in just my my everyday life and my everyday work. Um, So my research now, I've got kind of two new things um, in the works. So one thing that has come up across um, pretty much every study I think I've done involving autistic folks and people who care for them, care about them, um, is employment um, and transition to adulthood in general and employment specifically. Um, Mm. so of course this idea of the services cliff or the black hole, Mm. um, of services after someone is no longer receiving services from school. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so what to do there? Um, and, and a lot of people's concerns revolve around work and home. Um, so finding, finding a, a good, you know, good place to live, finding, um, a good way to to engage with work or not engage with work if work might actually be terrible, um, and that's something that that I uh, really try to keep open to in my research as well. Is um, there's a sort of a critique of capitalism that underpins that underpins a lot of this as well. But um, hoping to uh, very very soon uh, speak to folks across Michigan about uh, autistic folks across Michigan about their experiences um, searching for a job or having a job, cool. um, and um, you know particularly looking at um, different ideas about what autism is and how autistic folks and non-autistic folks are similar and different to each other, and and how those ideas might inform. Uh, how autistic and non-autistic folks work together in different contexts. So I think that's going to be really, really helpful, really cool. I think it is too, and I, I and I hope we can kind of have you back on to talk about that work. Uh, we uh, we uh, I have a personal interest. The company that I work I work for um, uh, that's also you know supports this podcast. Uh, we we do we have kind of uh, two departments. We do primarily. Uh, positive behavior support on one side, but the other side, um, for 30 years, we've been doing supported and customized employment um, for for folks with autism and, and other disabilities. And so, you know, I think some of this information is going to be really valuable. I was doing a little Googling just as we as, as, as we were finishing off here and noticed that Central Michigan does actually have a, a behavior analysis department. Uh, have you ever been been down to the building and had any conversations or? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, we... I think we might actually share, I used to have shared a building, um, although mm. our, our uh, psychology people are split across a couple different buildings, I think. So sure. not sure, sure where, where the students are, but I do know um, some of the some of the folks in the psychology department. Um, and we, um, 
we talk a lot and, and work together on different projects, um, very, you know, campus uh, specific projects as well, working on um, fitting the needs, uh, meeting the needs of autistic students uh, as well as working with the community. And actually, that's the other project that I have um, coming up is uh, a very local, um, but hopefully to inspire international work um, is that I am co-PI on a study from the uh, funded by the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation. Uh, Nellie Regina is the principal investigator there. And this study aims to increase disability studies um, and to, to bring together some of the disability studies work we have in the medical school. So training medical students to work with um, patients with disabilities, uh, not, not only mm. autism, mm. Um, but uh, and uh, we we have a, a task force or a, an advisory board um, for that project where we're really working with community members um, who identify as disabled, have a disability, or work with folks who do um, to you know keep that education um, as, as experience near as close as close to lived experience as possible and really um, fill that education need. Uh, that's that's really cool. Really yes, cool. fantastic. Yeah, looking forward to seeing some of that as well. Uh, Ariel, it was this is just a really been a really fascinating conversation. I, I want to say uh, um, so for our behavior analysis listeners, so we uh, we offer CEUs on this podcast, um, um, and I'm going to offer ethics CEUs. Um, I know the board likes to. Um, um, kind of have a connection to our ethics code. And I, I know you're not familiar with the, the BAC, well, maybe you are, but I, I, we didn't really talk about the BACB ethics code, didn't really kind of go there and, and, and kind of confuse things for you. But what I will be doing is including in the show notes um, all of the relevant sort of ethic code, ethics code items um, in our code um, to the discussion we kind of had today so folks can kind of see how the work you're doing you know, applies ethically to the work they're doing. And so we'll share that with folks as well. And uh, they can also come home. This, this is, I think this will be the first uh, episode in, in, in the series so far where I've been able to offer an ethics CEU. So thank you for that as well. So that's of fun. Course. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just again, wonderful, wonderful having you on the podcast. So glad you're able to make the time and, and, and look forward to kind of seeing some of your future work and bring you back again. Thank you so much for having me. It's great talking with you today. And thank you to everyone here who's listening. All right. Cheers. Cheers.